Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This episode is the edited version of a live session from the Jaipur Literature Festival 2021. A coup in Turkey. A tale of democracy, despotism, and vengeance in a divided land. Jeremy Seal in conversation with Max Rodenbeck. Great pleasure to welcome you all to, to this session. Um, and it's going to be fun. Uh, we've got a wonderful author, uh, Jeremy Seal, who's done yet another wonderful book in a long series. Um, his big subject is Turkey. He has many other interests. Uh, but um, I think we're going to dive in fairly quickly um, to get things moving. And I'm going to start by asking Jeremy a rude question, uh, which is, uh, this is, I mean, this book, I found it fascinating. Um, it's, uh, it, it, for me, it opened up uh, lots of things that I was unaware of with, uh, uh, regarding Turkey. Um, but I wonder if, if, if Jeremy would like to say in your own words, um, what, what should interest the world in this particular figure, this uh, Adnan Menderes? I mean, he's a prime minister who was uh, uh, the, the key political figure in Turkey during the 1950s, uh, you know, died, it's nearly, what, 60 years ago. Um, why should we, we be interested in Adnan Menderes and, and this Turkish figure from 60 years ago? Uh, thank you, Max. Very good question. Um, firstly, before I start, can I just say hello to all of you who I can't see, but I'm very grateful to you, for, to, to you all for being here. Um, so thank you. And I hope that we can, uh, that our discussion proves fruitful for all of you. Um, in terms of Adnan Menderes, I think maybe a good starting point is to, is to indicate that um, one of the things I've noticed about Turkey in all my years there is that there's always been a monopoly in terms of the uh, political figures who figure, who feature, as it were. Um, and that's because Turkey is uh, home to what is presumably, I would say undoubtedly actually, the biggest personality cult of all, which is Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the great founder of the modern Turkish state, who came to power in 1922, um, died in 1938, but remains even today the overwhelmingly most important figure, almost to the exclusion of everybody else in terms of the iconography. So you look at the notes and you look at the, uh, the, the banknotes and you look at the portraits and you look at the statues and he is everywhere, which is why it seems to me um, no other political figures actually get a look in. Um, and that is one of the reasons why Adnan Menderes has never featured. But there are other reasons too. And this is because ever since his death in 1961, which we will discuss, he has been uh, suppressed. His memory has been suppressed to the point of complete erasure, at least until the years of our current Turkish leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And what becomes apparent when you look into the story of Adnan Menderes is that he is nothing less, if you like, than the inspiration for Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He is effectively the template. And as I started digging into the story of Menderes, which as I say, um, is, is centered on the 1950s. He comes to power in 1950, he's deposed in 1960, um, is absolutely at the heart of, is absolutely at the, at the heart of this story. So 
if you want to understand modern Turkey, it seems to me you absolutely have to understand this figure, not least because he was so rigorously suppressed by the state up until 2000 and the early 2000s when Erdogan came to power. That's, that's terrific. And, uh, Jeremy, if I may, before going into plunging into the, the, the sort of the content of the book, uh, I have another rude question to ask. It's just, I like rude questions. Don't <laughs> keep the rude questions coming, Max. Very good, very good. Which is, why should we listen to Jeremy Seal about this? <laughs> I mean, what, what is it you can tell? What, why, why you? What, why, are you okay. why should you be the author of, 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 of his story? Let me make my case. Um, I, I, I need to go back a little bit to when I, when I left university in 1981. And I didn't know what to do with my life. Um, I had a sort of inkling that I might, um, sorry, in 1984 I left university, I'm taking, I'm adding years to my life. I had an inkling that I might go into writing or into teaching. Uh, I did an English language course, uh, English, teaching English as a foreign language course in London, was offered a job in Ankara, didn't know where Ankara, Ankara was, was also offered a job in Stockholm and thought I'd rather go to Ankara than Stockholm and so I went. So that took me to Turkey in 1984, which was a very interesting time, not least because there had been a coup in 1981 and the country was still laboring under the shadow of that coup. Um, but it was a fascinating time and it was a country that I instantly, instantly fell in love with and have continued to be transfixed by to this day. Um, and I think over the uh, 30 years, if that's what it now is, I can claim to have developed a good knowledge of the country. Um, I began as a travel writer, so I have written for a long time for any number of newspapers and publications on the delights of Turkey, but apolitically effectively. I was always interested in the beaches and the classical ruins and the culture and the people and the landscape and the sense, I suppose, that Turkey was not only in the old trope, the bridge between East and West, but it was also um, at, the, at the heart of that other nexus, which was North and South. So East and West, you've got Greece and Persia, Persia and East, so, so Persia and Greece. North and South, you've got Russia and Arabia. So Turkey sits at the heart of these four amazing cultures. And I think is, is informed by that as much as it's sometimes infected by that. So there is um, that um, reason for me making the case that it should be me who tells the story. There's another reason. And that is because the Menderes story has been, as I say, suppressed in Turkey. And while Turks talk about the Menderes story, they know that it's very contentious and it's never been written in a foreign language before. There is no account of Menderes in any detail beyond the journalism that existed um, at the time of his reign. He's not, there's not really been a lot in terms of looking back at him, at least until recently, when academics have begun to appreciate the way that Erdogan's using him as his kind of justification for his own approach to politics. And what I think I've done, and what I hope I've done, is acknowledge the fact that what you have in Turkey is two political ideological camps, each with their own position. And these positions broadly defined are on the one hand, Western modernizing and secularist, and on the other hand, nationalist, Turkish and devout Islamic. And those two positions and the people who adhere to those two positions take Menderes as a symbol and they either turn him, according to their polarized position, either into a hero or into a villain. 
they willingly, it seems to me, exclude the possibility of the man at the heart of all this. And what I've tried to do, partly because I'm an outsider, is to actually humanize Menderes, to get to the bottom of what he was really like, which no doubt was a mixture of all those elements. He can't have been a complete hero. He can't have been a total villain. Of course, he was something more complicated and nuanced than that. And the fact that both of the camps deny that seems to me an opportunity for me to actually say, here's the real man. And in acknowledging the real man, perhaps you can get closer to acknowledging the reality of each other's position. I think that was a very brilliant defense of your position. You'd make a wonderful Thank lawyer. You. Perhaps you should have been a lawyer instead of a daughter. <laughs> yes, I'm, my daughter's I'm, doing that. So we'll leave, we'll leave my daughter to become a lawyer. Well, I'm very convinced. Um, but um, uh, could you, it, it might be useful for some of, the, some of our listeners just to have uh, a very brief, I mean, skeletal brief description of, of, of Menderes's story in three sentences. You've done it in a book, but can you put it into three sentences? He came from I'm going to take a few more than three. What did he do? Why did he die? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make it as brief as I possibly can at the beginning. He's born in 1899. He comes to power, sorry, he, he becomes a politician in 1931, having been a cotton farmer in the southwest of the country. He's born into money. He's of the landed gentry, becomes a politician in 1931 when Turkey is a single party state uh, with, with Mustafa Kemal Ataturk as the president, dies in, uh, the president dies in 1938. In 1945, the Turkish government decides to come out for democracy. And it's at that point that the single party state gives way to the democratic model. Uh, Menderes is one of the founders of the Democrat Party, which is swept to power in 1950 with Menderes as the prime minister. In the course of that decade, all sorts of things happen, not least the increased animosity of the army for Mr. Menderes, and we can go into, the reasons for, go into the reasons for this in a minute, which ends with them deposing him in 1960, taking him to trial along with all the members of his uh, government in 1960, 1961, and it ends in the humiliation and the subsequent execution by hanging along with two of his ministers of Menderes on an island of Istanbul in October in September 1961. So that's the story of his life, br briefly put. Great, great. And I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a tragic story and it's a story of this extraordinary rise to, to power and then this absolutely catastrophic fall. Uh, so it makes a riveting tale, in fact. But one of the interesting things about your book uh, is, is the way that you've decided to, to tell the story. And I thought it was, it was, it's curious that you actually begin the story, not in Turkey at all, but at Gatwick Airport, which yes. is, is, is when it's not a place I think of, I associate with great drama. Uh, yes. Could, could you, could you uh, set the scene at Gatwick Airport? Yes, indeed. In fact, it was Gatwick Airfield at the time. This is 1959. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. It, it barely emerged as a proper airport. Um, and on September the 17th, sorry, not September, February the 17th, 1959, our, um, our protagonist, Adnan Menderes, is flying into Gatwick along with a deputation delegation of high-ranking government officials to sign the agreement on the independence of Cyprus, which actually is signed two days later in, 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 on the 19th of February, 1959. It's a foggy afternoon. And in the course of that foggy afternoon, the pilot loses his way and comes down amongst trees a couple of miles short of the runway at Gatwick Airport. Um, there are 24 people all in on board. Of them, 14 die outright instantly. Um, several of the others are very badly wounded. 
and three, three out of the 24, are able to walk out of the wreckage unaided. <clears throat> One of these is Adnan Menderes. And <clears throat> it happens that a local farmer, whose name is Margaret Bailey, or at least she's the, she's the wife of a local farmer, comes across these three men dressed in suits in the, in the, south, in the south of England gloaming on a February day and discovers to her amazement that he is the Prime Minister of Turkey and in the background she can see this burning wreckage. Um, so it's an extraordinary situation and its relevance to what happens subsequently is this. Um, Menderes is overthrown 15 months later. This is February 1959. Menderes is overthrown in um, May of 1960. The important fact is this, that the fact of the crash, which is the first fatal crash suffered by Turkish Airlines, obviously is considered a national tragedy back in Turkey. But more than that, the fact of Menderes's survival is really key to our story in that the base that he's been developing for himself ever since he came to power was devout, traditional and increasingly Islamic. And this base sees in his survival the hand of Allah, the hand of God. And this plays out really dramatically two weeks later when he gets back to uh, when he returns to, to, to Turkey, a surviving hero, miraculously still alive. And he arrives at Ankara railway station where he is met by huge crowds of his devout base. And they're all bringing with them livestock to be sacrificed in thanks for the uh, miraculous um, delivery, deliverance of Adnan Menderes. And there, is there, there are these amazing scenes where the boulevards of Ankara run with blood as oxen and goats and sheep and even camels are brought down in the name of their uh, in the name of their surviving hero. And it seems to me this is absolutely essential because this is the moment, I think, although it's unspoken, when the opposition to Menderes recognize just what a threat he means to them, that he's that, that by weaponizing Islam, he's reached a stage where his believers think he's untouchable. And perhaps that's the prompt that causes the army to begin to think about how they might move against him. And this, this sort of display of, you know, the sort of uh, uh, what might say, might say the sort of the primitive side of the religion, your know, sacrifice and blood for your yeah. leader um, is, uh, is exactly what, uh, or this, this sort of primitive sacrifice, uh, primitive, is, uh, primitive is the right word, but uh, this mass display of fervor is exactly what Ataturk had tried to sort of absolutely extinguish, uh, uh, you know, 40 years before. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is but, the provocation, I think, that um, everything that Ataturk and his followers have worked for since 1922, and this brings right. us on to the reform movement, which effectively set out to transform the Ottoman Empire in the form of the modern Turkish state, with the Ottoman Empire being a theocracy run by a sultan um, into a modern, very westward, radically Western state, almost overnight. Um, which, at least in terms of the few years that, that they tried to do it. So they begin in 1922, and by Ataturk's death in 1938, the country, to all intents and purposes, has been transformed in terms of the script, in terms of the civil code, in terms of the language, in terms of the way people dress, in terms of every aspect of life, um, and not least the relegation of religion to an entirely private practice rather than at the heart of the state and, and the way that the state works. So when 
the followers of Ataturk, he now being dead in 1938, in 1959, see Menderes come back and not only fail to discourage these scenes of kind of primitive, barbaric um, superstition, but actually seem to enjoy it. There is this feeling that everything that the, 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 the Turkish state and the followers of Ataturk have fought for is at risk. And I think you, 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 you also, well, we may get back to this later, but you point out an irony that, that because Menderes survived this plane crash, to his, to his followers, it seemed that he was invincible. So in some ways, in an ironic fashion, when he was overthrown and put on trial, it became almost necessary to execute him just to prove that he was uh, uh, not invincible. You know, so exactly. in, some, in some ironic way, having survived the plane crash, surviving the plane crash made him more likely to die uh, by being executed. It seems to me that it effectively functioned as his death sentence. I think that's entirely right. Mm -hmm. There were officers, there were military officers within the, within the junta whose position was, if we don't execute him, they will take it as the fact that we simply couldn't. And we therefore need to demonstrate that what happened in 1959 um, in that Surrey wood near Gatwick was entirely down to luck rather than to any kind of part on rather than to any rather than to any any divine intervention and that's for me such an interesting aspect of all this um, but it plays into the fact that even late on in the um, trials when it appeared that Mendrez was heading for execution that any number of his base were saying they can't do it they won't be able to do it they're not going to be able to kill him because it's already been demonstrated that he's untouchable. So he becomes a, he becomes a sort of semi-supernatural figure, even before he dies, and then goes on, as we'll talk a bit later, I suspect, to what he becomes subsequently and posthumously. Right, right. No, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm going to have to back us up a little bit, if we can... Yeah, please. Mind. We sort of back up to when the point when Ataturk died in 1938, having completed this very radical trans transformation of Turkey, uh, radical secularization, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, cast religion right out of, out of public life uh, in virtually every way possible. Um, and the, the, the degree of the radicalism of that revolution, it's, it's hard to sort of even conceive of now. I mean, he, he just uprooted absolutely hundreds of years of tradition. Um, yes. But then that was 1938 and Menderes actually sort of comes into power in the early 1950s. Yes. How did that happen? What, what was this drift that, that allowed Menderes, who is a, yeah. you know, not, not a rabid secularist, uh, how did he sort of uh, uh, manage to, to, to uh, come out of that radical uh, uh, secularism uh, and emerge? Well, I think, it's, majority I, think, yeah, I think it's entirely to do with the role of democracy within the modern Turkish state. Um, even though Turkey under Ataturk and up until nine, and up until 1945 was a single party state run by the party that Ataturk had founded. There had always been a slightly suppressed strand, if you like, of sort of reform and, 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 a, and a desire for democracy among some people, even amongst the late Ottomans. And this was pressing harder and harder, it seems to me, upon the Turkish state, at least certainly in 1945. Because what happened at the, after the war, and we now need to very quickly look at the role of, of Turkey within the war, was that Turkey had, um, had not taken sides to the disgust, actually, of the Allies, had refused to take sides in the war, and in fact had continued to sell chrome, which the Nazis needed to uh, plate their munitions, 
in large quantities to to to, to, to Germany until until late 1944. So there was a lot of animosity towards Turkey amongst the Allies. And what the Turkish state recognized in 1945, having only just come into the war on the side of the Allies rather too late, was that their main enemy that they'd made in all this was the Soviets, who were very belligerent at this point. And of course, the Soviet Union abuts Turkey. And the Soviet Union, the Russian state, has always looked covetously towards Turkey, not least because it represents a warm water route to the Aegean for its Black, to, to its black Sea fleet. Um, so there was this sense that, um, yeah, that, that they were in danger from the Soviets. And the Soviets made all sorts of belligerent noises. The, the, the Turkish state's response to this was to declare unequivocally on the part of democracy and uh, make a case to be accepted in the family of the Western nations. And I think that there were lots of Turkish leaders at the time who felt that, that Turkey probably wasn't ready for a fully fledged democracy, but that they had no choice. And therefore they needed to go for democracy if they wanted to fend off um, aggression on the part of the Soviets who might well have considered invading, not least Eastern Turkey, where a couple of the provinces they considered to be their own. So the decision is taken to adopt democracy without any delay. And um, I suppose it's a natural consequence of that. The moment you do that, you suddenly then discover just how much opposition there was to the uh, reform, to the radical reform program of Ataturk and his commands, because people are actually allowed to vote upon it. So Mendrez finds him as, the, as the, one of the leading figures of an opposition party, which naturally stands, comes to stand for opposition and resistance to what the uh, ruling party stands for, which is hardline, hardline secularism. And he comes, he comes riding on this wave of opposition, uh, the, people's first, the first chance that people have to protest. And I think, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that as he comes in, it, it, he, it, it's sort of a revelation also, uh, 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 the, 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 the extent of the division in Turkish society, largely between rural and urban, or between cosmopolitan big cities, which were pretty much entirely behind the secularization drive, and then this vast sort of country hinterland, which, which was not and was resistant. But the level of that resistance didn't really become clear until Menderes comes into power. Exactly. I think the question had never been asked. Um, and there was this deep-seated contempt of the educated elites for the peasant masses, um, which Menderes not only recognized, but decided to actually do something about. What the um, educated elites have done in terms of the peasantry, and of course the people who lived in the country in Turkey in the 1950s, the split was about 75%, 25%, 75% farming peasantry, 25% educated um, townies. And therefore, I mean, it doesn't take um, a, a mathematician to work out that if that's the breakdown, um, and if you then have free elections, the whoever represents the peasantry is gonna come out on top. And I think that Menderes did this partly because it was the route to power, but also because I believe genuinely that at the beginning, he was sincerely um, supportive of the needs of country people. He, he had worked, of course, he'd run a large cotton farm of his own of 30,000 acres with a lot of, with a lot of um, farming people on it um, in his corner of the country prior to becoming a politician. And I think that 
he had adopted a sort of a patriarchal and beneficial um, stance towards farmers. So he was well placed to position himself as a representative of the, uh, of the working people. What also helped him at that point was that 1950 sees the Americans eventually deciding that the Turks are a good thing and that they're going to back them with um, large amounts of aid fund through the Marshall Plan. So suddenly the Democrats, as they come to power in 1950, discover that they not only have the um, enthusiasm to do something um, for, the, uh, for, for their rural base, that they actually have the funds to deliver it as well. So what you see in the early 1950s, there's lots of money being funneled into infrastructure in the countryside, water being piped to the villages, new roads, all the rest. And suddenly the prospects of the ordinary working country people, which up until then had been dire, I mean, literally dire, are transformed. I think, I think as you put it, and it was, it was this often used phrase in Turkey, that during the 1950s, it was Menderes who took people out of their, their, their cheap sandals and put them into shoes. That was, that was his... That's what that's what happened in the in the decade. Um, exactly, and you still see and you still hear people using that phrase. I mean, there are you still come across people all over Turkey now who remember him and they attach that phrase as their way of uh, as their way of defining the, their reasons for being grateful towards him. But there's and the, during this decade though there was a kind of there's so many ironies in this story and it's a, in some ways it's a, there are ironies that are quite familiar to to Indians right now in Indian in politics. When, when Menderes came in, he was uh, the Mr. Clean. He uh, uh, was absolutely in favor of uh, free speech and so on. Um, you know, he was in, in, in favor of uh, uh, free, you know, freedoms of every kind. Uh, but over the course of the decade, this became less and less true of his, of his rule. He became more and more of a populist sort of despot, actually. Uh, I mean, how did that, what, you know, how did that happen? And what, I mean, it, it just seems ironic that by the end of his, his uh, rule as prime minister, he was throwing, not only throwing journalists into, into, into jail, but throwing into jail some of the same journalists that he had freed from prison uh, 10 years before. Yeah, two things to say there, I think. One, the, the parallels with um, the current president, but also uh, I think what you find is that it seems to me a natural kind of default deterioration. And it maybe it's to do with um, people who are better suited for autocracy and who have come out of a tradition of autocracy, discovering that their skin is not as thick as it needs to be for democratic life. Menderes was, had a complicated background. He had suffered a lot of trauma in his early life. And I think that he was hypersensitive. He simply as much as he adored the, um, the, the adoration of the, uh, of the masses, and he was a great one for attending rallies, again, like Erdogan, he could not abide criticism to the point where the only way he could actually deal with leadership was to actually reset it um, um, in a, in a, in a non-democratic way. So you get this natural retreat from his espousal of democracy to an absolute uh, denial of it, exactly. But it's, it seems, to, I mean, I, I'm sure you, you, your, your characterization of Menders is, 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 is quite accurate, but it also seems there's something systemic in Turkey, certainly at that time, but it seems to be true now. I mean, Erdogan is almost as prickly you know, and worried about criticism. But the way that you've described the, the sort of the, the, the political evolution in the 1950s is that, that democracy became a sort of quite vicious zero-sum game where the, the party in power went after its, its, its opponents uh, in a truly kind of, you know, trying to shut them out completely. Um, 
and and you know to the point of you know uh, fisticuffs and clashes in the parliament and so on. I mean, yeah. is is there something in in Turkey itself that 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 makes politics end up like that? Because it seems to have happened again, you know, 30, 40 years later. And look, I wonder whether it's something to do with the transition, the very dramatic transition from the previous incarnation to the modern one. And I think you get the same thing in in, in Soviet Russia and its transition from um, the Tsarist state. You know, I mean, there are kind of interesting parallels with Putin as well that, that you get with that you get with Menderes. And I think it is simply to do, and I think it's partly to do with this very interesting fact, but actually what they know is that their contempt of democracy, to a degree at least, plays quite well with their base because their base is effectively looking for a, for another strongman. They're looking for a, they're looking for a, a they're looking for a a, a, a a sultan effectively. They're looking for a sultan figure, and they don't want a modern democratic politician who's prepared to make comp compromises because 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 it's it's not their idea of, of what a leader does. And maybe that's what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one of the, the I, I want to talk a bit about how you've you've written the book, which it was mm. quite quite wonderful. You've enlivened it uh, immensely. This isn't a typical history book. I mean, it's not a. It's you've got the footnotes. You've got lots of research, both literary research, archival research, and interviews with 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 some uh, really interesting people, including sort of bit characters, people who knew Menderes, including yes. you know uh, uh, prison guards, all kinds of people. Um, and um, uh, you know, I just you know. What, what sort of category would you put your book into? Is it is it a history book? Is it a, is it a biography? Is it a, uh, a yeah. where, where would you put it? Because uh, in some in some ways, if you let me go on a little bit of uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of a sort of television uh, docudrama. Uh, you've animated it with conversations that aren't real, but they're very useful. I found. I mean, I thought it didn't annoy me. I found they they were actually you managed to get a lot of information into these conversations, but they're well, conversations that you've recreated. Uh, yes. Can you explain something about that? Sure, and I and I wouldn't wish to annoy you, Max. So that's that's <laughs> all to the good. Yeah, that's all to the good. I mean, firstly, I should say that um, I come out of a tradition as a travel writer, so um, there is a sense in which this this book also takes the form of a travelogue. I'm travelling around Turkey. It happens in 2016, researching the story of what happened in the 1950s. So it is a travelogue, but all my travelogues have been rich in history. History is my kind of thing. Um, and this one, as you say, also serves to a degree, at least, as a biography, a biography, a first biography in English of, um, of Menderes. So it is all these things. And then, as you say, it's also there's also this kind of degree of dramatization, which is something I go with. Um, I wanted to tell this primarily not, of a, not as an analysis of this period, but as the story of this period, because the some of the detail for example of the trial is extraordinary it's it's surreal and it's very dramatic and of course the execution is dramatic there were so many elements it seemed to me that went into a story rather than anything else and the reason why there are um episodes where i invent the narrative where i invent the dialogue is because i know those episodes took place i knew what the outcome of the episode was and i can sort of guess at what was said but nobody will tell me because the actual wording was not actually recorded. So I made the call to actually provide them. And that plays into the idea I was talking earlier about of how, how do you humanize a figure who really needs to be humanized when the two versions of it are both polarized and if you like, nothing more than symbols. So I wanted to find a way of giving a life to a man whose life has effectively been withdrawn 
by his reduction to either hero or villain um, status. And I think you do point out that in Turkey, it's very difficult to be neutral about this. I mean, it, it remains polarized. I mean, it, it, it just, it hasn't stopped. Uh, exactly. So you, the the yeah. role that you can play to sort of, you know, allow people to talk to each other in a way. But I, 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 I do hope that you get the Netflix uh, contract uh, so do I. For, for your serialization, because it is a very dramatic story, I think. Uh, it is a dramatic story. I mean, I'd like the Netflix contract too. So if anybody's talking to Netflix now, please put them in touch. Yeah. And well, I, I'm going to open up for questions from the audience in a, in a second. But just before opening up, uh, one, one thing to... to uh, what is, is Mendes' legacy right now in Turkey? Well, it's really interesting because the Erdogan lot are playing him for all they're worth at the moment. The island where he was imprisoned off Istanbul uh, called Yasada, where he and all his uh, MPs and ministers were imprisoned for over a year in 1960-1961, um, has been reopened as, as a memorial museum to Menderes and to the Menderes years. So as I've already indicated, the Erdogan people are playing him for all they're worth as the hero of democracy. But he remains, uh, as far as the opposition is concerned, as the worst thing that ever happened to the country. I've heard people use that phrase in relation to him. These are often people who are a lot, lot younger than me, certainly weren't around when Menderes, when, when Menderes was around. And I think what, a lot of what they, they know about the man is based upon, I would say, I would contend unfair, biased readings of the man. And I think that's what we need. We need to actually bring him back into the center ground so that people get a sense of what he really should represent. Fantastic. Well, listen, I'm going to open up to the audience. Um, uh, and we have some questions that people have sent in. And we have Manya and Emma both asking exactly the same question. I yes. think that they have a, a future in, uh, in, uh, as, as uh, internet uh, trolls uh, because they've asked the same question with the same words exactly. And the question is, uh, how did the book change you, Jeremy? Uh, I.e., what role did the book play in your personal growth and development? It's a really good question. Um, the reason I wrote this book, given that I'm a travel writer and largely apolitical in my approach to things, was that I reached a stage in about, uh, well, it was actually 2013 when the Gezi protests took place in Istanbul. You'll all remember them. They were the protests about a park which caused the country to um, almost go up in flames for, for one summer in relation to the resistance to the plans that Erdogan had for this particular park in Istanbul. And it was, at that, it was at that point that I began to get a kind of sense that my understanding of the country had actually naturally taken me to the need to engage with um, uh, a, a more contentious and a more difficult subject, which was the political side of things, not least because I saw a lot of writers being imprisoned and I was actually beginning to receive um, adverse comments about things I was writing in travel articles and I thought this is not reasonable, this is not unfair, this feels like a spur to me to actually look at the bigger question of what are the political underpinnings um, and the political currents at work in this country and then I came across the Menderes story quite by chance when I was on a walk in the southwest of Turkey and I came across an old man in a house who, who invited him for tea and on his wall there were all these pictures of his family and this particular picture of Menderes with his ministers showing them a model of a mosque and I had never seen at that point another image of a political figure in Turkey other than Ataturk and indeed Erdogan and 
I suddenly realized from that exchange that there was this hidden figure who had a hidden story who might be able to, uh, who, who, and by digging around with that, it might be able to inform better my understanding of, what, of how the country operates and the, uh, the forces at work there. And the, the parallels between uh, uh, Erdogan and, and Menderes are really quite extraordinary. I mean, the, the photograph of the mosque that you describe is yeah. exactly the sort of picture of, of Erdogan that one sees all the time because he's built mosques all over the place, the world's biggest and then a bigger one and then a still bigger one um, with the same sort of grandiosity and the idea of recapturing some kind of you know, Turkish greatness. And uh, I mean, something else that's, that's similar was there, both of them were determined to remake Istanbul. I mean, they sort of wanted to make that their particular personal showcase, uh, yes. which I thought was, I, I think is kind of fascinating. The so, great builder, this was the idea. They both regard themselves as the great builder or the great architect. Yes, yes, yes. So infrastructure. Um, yeah, uh, another question from Amaya, uh, let's see, who asks, uh, given this, do you think rapid progress or shift from what is traditional, what is considered traditional, is a shift from what is traditional plausible without massive backlash uh, in terms of social justice? Uh, you know, the, 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 what does Menderes, the story of Menderes make you think about the, the, the possibility of, of rapid progress uh, uh, without giving attention to social justice? It's a really good question. And I think that um, people who look at the reform years, 1922 to 1938 particularly, they have to acknowledge that the devout majority were treated very badly um, and, and they were forced to come along whether they liked it or not. It wasn't Bolshevik but it, there were some fairly unpleasant things done um, in terms of suppressing those natural post-Ottoman um, sentiments and attitudes towards life. Um, I agree. I think it's really, really hard to uh, affect the kind of transformation that Ataturk um, uh, set out to do. I think he's been partially successful, if not more than partially successful, and only because he was so much admired uh, and in two ways admired by everybody as a, uh, as, a, as a military figure, as the savior of the nation from invasion, but not admired to the same degree as a social architect and as a social engineer. And that's where the uh, complicated thing arises. Um, comparable attempts to change were affected in countries like Afghanistan, of course, in the 1930s, um, and self-evidently did not succeed to the same degree. I think that the, the really good news is despite the fact that democracy always seems to be under threat in Turkey, what happened over the last couple of years where, the, where, where some very important elections were won by the opposition despite Erdogan's party doing all they could to, uh, to win them themselves suggests to me that despite all of this, there is a very strong feeling for the importance of, of democracy in Turkish life. There is a pride in democracy and I think it has taken root. So I am hopeful that democracy at least has put down its roots, but it may well be the case that the consequence of the, consequence of the application of that democracy is that the country continues to actually choose a slightly different route to the one that Ataturk chose, which was full on westernization and modernization. Maybe it's gonna be something more nuanced and more complicated. But it might have to wait for Mr. Erdogan to leave the scene. Uh, yes, um, 2023 are the next big elections. Nobody's quite sure what will happen. There is an interesting figure who's the mayor of Istanbul, who, uh, who, is, who, who actually came to power in Istanbul in 2019 in very dramatic circumstances. Whether he is going to be able to carry 
uh, a victory in 2023, assuming he stands, nobody's quite sure, but it'll be really interesting. That's the moment, I think. And I have another question, a question from uh, Amaya, who's asking, uh, what does the aftermath of the coup in Turkey tell us about modern day populism and democratic backsliding? And I just add something, something that you know, occurred to myself as well, uh, which is that there's a phrase that, that both Erdogan and Menderes used a lot, which they both talked about the popular will as if they yeah. are the incarnation of the popular will. Uh, but at a certain point, their you know, expression of the popular will stops being popular and becomes their, their own will. You know, and I just, what, what, is that, what is the point at which that happens, do you think? And, you know, and, and to get back to Amaya's question, what does that tell us about modern day populism uh, and the, 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 the likelihood of backsliding yeah. uh, democracy? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a it's very reductive, isn't it? This kind of notion that whatever happens at the ballot box is the extent of um, how democracy should be applied. And beyond that, until the next time that people are invited to go to the ballot box, you just put up with what the um, with what the government wants to uh, apply and put through. It's sort of it's effectively it's it's a kind of majoritarianism, and it seems to me it's a natural reading of democracy if you're the sort of leader who's not very comfortable with it and actually comes from a more authoritarian tradition. It's effectively saying, yeah, we'll sign the box saying democracy, but we won't really deliver on it. Um, well, I, th I think, I think Erdogan famously said that democracy is a tram that you get onto and then you can get off when you want to. Indeed, and indeed. Um, uh, that, that has been that has been leveled against him so many times. And of course, it's incredibly. Um, I think what's most interesting about it was he said that publicly. He was prepared to say that at a point where he actually felt he could get away with it. You know, broadly speaking, evincing a sort of a contempt for democracy that probably plays, as I've suggested before, reasonably well in the villages, where to a lot of them, the notion of uh, collective decisions runs against their experience of democracy, which is that there will be a village elder to whom you go to, if it's not the imam, to whom you go to for advice on how you live your life, and that's it. What democracy in the broader, more inclusive sense is trying to do is to, is to break down those old structures, which is, I think, gonna take a while. Yeah, yeah. And as I was saying, one worries about, you know, democracy played, you know, re regarded as a zero sum game where the winner takes all, mm. or as a game that keeps playing again and again. And it takes a while to evolve from one into the other, if you are lucky enough to, to, to do that evolution. Uh, so uh, 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 I would hope that Turkey's reached, you know, sort of crossed that corner now. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that's my feeling. My feeling because of what happened, as I say, in 2019, which I reference at the end of the book. Um, struck me as being an amazingly important moment, as did what happened in the coup of 2016, because the difference between the two stories, of course, is that Menderes's story ends up, ends up in a successful coup against him. Erdogan's story hasn't ended, and indeed an effect to end, an attempt to end it in 2016, ended up with it failing, with it failing because um, um, it was a blunderingly, spectacularly unsuccessful attempt at a coup, so much so that some people wonder whether it, whether it was a put-up job. But the important thing there was that in, in 1960, there was a lot of support for the coup by, by, by supporters of Ataturk and by the, um, and, and by the secular um, elites. By 2016, I don't think that was the case. I think there was a general consensus that even if people wanted to see rid of Erdogan, this was not the way to do it. And therefore that a coup was unacceptable in 2016 
in a way that it wasn't in 1960. And that seems to me to be full of kind of hope for um, Turkey's future. Right, right. Well, thank you, Jeremy. So Erdogan will stay in power longer than we can stay on air. Unfortunately, <laughs> we've got to wrap up the session. Our time is up. Um, thanks so much, Jeremy. That was really, really interesting. I wish we could talk longer. But, um, it's been a pleasure, Max. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank I do you all for recommend listening. everyone to read the book. It's a super book. Yeah, and very, very readable. It's, it's not a dense history book. It's a lively and fascinating story and a tragic end. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please subscribe or follow to this show wherever you're listening to this.